You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us now at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 416, Chrysalis. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, taking it into our care, and then determining if the whole thing stands up, and if the morals, meanings, and messages can be released back out into the world. This week, Chrysalis, the one that reunites us with the characters from Statistical Probabilities, in order to have Dr. Bashir do something very improbable, statistically speaking anyway. John will chime in with trivia in a moment right after I tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why I went to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. With my very improbable trivia. No, no, no. Now we're on to Chrysalis. Different episode. Today's episode was written by Renee Echeverria, and it hasn't been too long since we covered one of Renee's scripts. He did just get credit for After Image. And it should be no surprise that he wrote Statistical Probabilities featuring our four guest characters. The original pitch was very different, though, with the four having to pretend to be Starfleet officers while they get wrapped up in a mission. And it would have mostly focused on Jack, inspired by Flowers for Algernon, the short story by Daniel Keyes, probably best known in its adaptation as the movie Charlie, starring Cliff Robertson. For a number of reasons, they decided not to go in that direction. It was directed by Jonathan West, and here we are at the end of Jonathan West's directing credits on Star Trek. Remember, he was director of photography on both TNG and DS9, following in Marvin Rush's footsteps, and then directing a few episodes from time to time. Don't worry, though, he's still around as DP through the end of this season. So there's nothing to report in trivia about locations or extraordinary effects. This is a bottle show, through and through, which brings us to our guest stars, and we've seen them all before. Reprising their roles from statistical probabilities are Tim Ransom as Jack, Hilary Shepard-Turner as Lauren, and Michael Keenan as Patrick. The focus on this episode, though, is on Serena, played by Faye Saley. And it was Hans Beimler who made the suggestion to Iris Stephen Bear and to Renee to shift the focus to the one who was silent in the previous episode. But nobody had heard Faith talk in character. So even though she was the same actor in the same role, they had her audition. And then they directed her to have no subtext in her lines because Serena was experiencing everything new. 
We mentioned last time that Faith has had an extensive career as a writer, host, radio personality, all in addition to acting. She can frequently be seen on CBS Sunday Morning. She is a host of the PBS show Science Goes to the Movies, and I I might circle back to that in a comment a little later. And a fun fact about the cast in this episode, we know that DS9 is full of actors who have a stage background, and that is true for the guest stars, too. Faith, Hillary, and Michael were ready to go with the musical interlude in this episode. Not Tim, though. He is not prone to carrying a tune, so in the singing scene, he is dubbed. Is there a 3 a.m. call that isn't an emergency? Stay tuned to find out. Prologue. Poor Dr. Bashir. All he wants to do is spend some quality time with his buddy, Chief Miles O'Brien. Miles has other things to do, though. Apparently his... uh, uh, Hang on, I'm checking my notes. His family is on board, and he has plans with them? Okay. Kira and Odo are busy, too, and all of this leaves the doctor to his own devices. Literally, he's in bed with a pad, working on a solution to a virus that he just can't crack. Then a call comes through from Nog that Admiral Patrick and his staff demand to see him, now, at 3 a.m. There is no Admiral Patrick. It's Patrick, Jack, and Lauren, three of the genetically altered humans who visited DS9 some months before, now posing as Starfleet officers, all in a bid to get their other companion, Serena, into the care of Dr. Bashir. He might have a way to break her out of her catatonic state. Act 1. Captain Sisko is furious for a minute. Then he agrees to let Bashir carry out his work on Serena and provide a place for everyone else to stay in a cargo hold. They really should stick around as Bashir makes his case. Imagine, though, the shock from isolation when suddenly she can hear and speak and see. Once he sets out to work, Bashir explains the problem to Chief O'Brien. Serena's brain was enhanced to process information way faster than her senses can send them. She seems to be completely unreceptive. The test he gave her show no sense at all. Her eyes react to light the dials detected. She hears but cannot answer to your call. She's out of sync, and all he has to do is fire up some new synapses with this machine that simply won't do it. Not even the chief can break the laws of physics to make it happen. Cut to Jack, Lauren, and Patrick, who can and do because... Then you're going to need a montage of Dr. Bashir doing doctor things and looking very concerned over Serena, hooked up to all kinds of medical equipment. Days pass, and like a young Friedrich von Frankenstein, Bashir is despondent, considering that his experiment has failed. He's sharing his disappointment with Esri at Quark's bar when who does he spy but Serena, standing in the promenade, taking it all in, Then when he asks what she's looking at, she says, everything. Act 2. Serena is new to speech, to hearing, to interacting, and it's all a little much for her to handle. But her highly advanced brain goes right to work. She understands the infirmary and Bashir's procedures as well as he does, and she's grateful for the work he's done. 
Time then to reintroduce Serena to her companions. They are stunned. Here she is now, interacting, listening, talking. Some of her synaptic functions are still connecting, though. Speech is nearly there, but not quite. And tone is another thing. Jack, in a bit of an experiment, practices scales with the group to see how quickly Serena can catch on, which she does, from tone-deaf to improvised harmonies in a matter of minutes. Bashir is amazed, too, and later he shares the good news with O'Brien. The chief, though, is a bit surly. He's just been waiting all evening for Bashir, who is supposed to hang out with him in the hollow suite, but he's happy for Serena and the doctor. Later that night, Bashir goes back to his quarters to find Serena. She got in past his security code because she needed a place to go. She's scared, afraid that all the progress he's made could just go away and she'd be back to where she was. Bashir comforts her, though, saying that her future is now full of possibilities she never imagined. And with those words, she falls asleep in his arms. Act 3. The next morning, Serena is awake early, reading Bashir's notes about that virus he was working on. Of course, she's figured out a solution for him in no time, and kindly reassures him that he would have found it eventually. It's a little scene that is very domestic. Serena sees Dr. Bashir off to work with a scone and a promise to see him later. Smiles all around. In a very different scene, Serena's companions are in the cargo bay. Jack and Patrick are working on solving the big crunch when the universe collapses on itself. Lauren is staring lovingly at a picture of Nog. When Serena joins them, though, she's less like them. They're talking about manipulating subspace, and her concerns are clearly somewhere else. The longer she spends with them, the quieter she gets, slipping into her old, silent role with the others. Dr. Bashir comes to the rescue with an invitation. How about joining him and his friends at Quark's bar later? And that invitation is just for her, not the others. Lauren gets it, and she's there to help out, with a little wardrobe and makeup magic to send Serena off on her date. The transformation complete... Bashir and Serena join Odo, Kira, Miles, and Ezri in the bar. Honestly, couldn't have gone better. She liked all of them and could size them up perfectly in a thoughtful and insightful way, of course. They liked her, too. And it's this realization that Serena doesn't fit with her old friends anymore. She's adjusted after her procedure and won't be going back to the Institute with the other three. Bashir makes it easier by making an offer. She could stay here on DS9, and then he gives her a kiss, and another kiss. Act 4. Bashir breaks the news to Jack, Patrick, and Lauren. It goes about as one would expect, but the decision is final. They'll go back to the Institute, and she'll be staying on DS9, in her own quarters, just in case anyone dared to think this was about the Doctor's own desires. To take their minds off the rift, Bashir and Serena play a little dabo, at which Serena is a master. Quark interrupts them with each spin that he loses money. Serena needs to leave, though. It's too distracting. Later, on the way back to her quarters, Bashir promises a quieter time ahead, just the two of them for dinner the next day, then maybe some time away. The deeper Bashir falls for Serena, he shares his exuberance with Miles. The chief says maybe, just maybe, he's going too fast. And she's his patient, too. 
but Bashir has it all figured out. She's no longer in his care, and she's also the one woman who can possibly understand him, who shares some similar background where they can be honest. And unenthusiastic, O'Brien says he's happy for both of them. That night, Bashir sets the table for a romantic dinner for two, but hours pass and no Serena. Fed up, he goes to her quarters and overrides the lock to find her sitting silently, staring into space. Act 5. The doctor doesn't know what happened. His procedure worked, but there's no response from Serena. She's slipping further away in total silence. So he appeals to her companions. They're unwilling at first, but they agree to work with her for a while since they know her better than anyone else. They figure it out. Leaving the cargo bay, the three confront Bashir in his quarters. She can respond, but she won't. And they think it has to do with him. Her eyes can see, her ears can hear, her lips speak. All the time the needles flick and rock. No machine can give the kind of stimulation needed to remove her inner block. Bashir now goes directly to Serena, begging that she let him know what's wrong. Look at her in the mirror dreaming, what is happening in her head. She breaks. It's fear. While he professes love, she doesn't understand her feelings and doesn't know how to be in his life. The next day, the other three have gone, and a despondent Bashir sits in the replimat where Miles approaches him. Serena hasn't left yet, but will soon and the doctor is regretful about his actions. He pushed too much, too fast, didn't allow her room to grow. And he could have reversed every bit of progress she made only because he didn't put her needs above his own. Bashir does see Serena off on the transport she's taking away from the station. She's off to somewhere to make a life for herself. They say they'll miss each other, and they have one last kiss before Serena crosses the airlock and Bashir watches the shuttle depart. The end. So, John, let's start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. A very good place to start. (laughs) Yeah. Um, When you read, you begin with ABC. ABC, And when you break this episode down, you begin with observations. Yeah. So so let's go into the observations. Let's talk about, you know, uh, some of the things that stood out to us. Now, at the Mm -hmm. very beginning of this episode, okay, so I understand that there's hollow sweet stuff. I dig that. I dig hollow sweet mm-hmm. stuff. Same. But you have to walk through the entire promenade with what you're wearing, like Kira and Odo were, mm-hmm. to get to the hollow sweet. So kind of everybody knows what's going on with your business, like Bashir did. If they went in with uniforms, he'd be like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And Odo could have been like, "Wow, well, we're just gonna have a drink." Sure. It'd be just like, but you don't drink. Yeah. And Kira's like, oh, don't be like that. But now they're like all in, oh, we're in Vic attire, so. Yeah. Yeah. So I, two thoughts on that. As you're saying it, I'm thinking that, yeah, clearly the, the Hollow Suite could create uh, whatever you want. And depending on what that simulation is that you're going into, yeah, I mean, it, it could be anything. And you are advertising to the world. Um, but I also like to think that this is a future in which all things are acceptable. Like Odo could just decide to be tuxedo Odo from here on out. Why not? He could still wear his uh, his badge. He, he could still be the constable. But in the 24th century, hopefully you've gotten to that point that if you just want to wear uh, Las Vegas evening wear, you can. 
He still didn't fix his bow tie. Uh, kind of yeah, 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 very true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, I do have another question right off at the top of the show when we're talking about mm-hmm. what's happening to our four friends who are genetically mm-hmm. altered. Are we still keeping people in a cargo hold? Because, come on, are, are real quarters too good for them? DS9 is huge. Everybody's got quarters, all right? right. <laughs> There's plenty of room. I, I still feel like we're doing this thing where we're just deciding to treat them as second-class citizens as opposed to maybe people who need some extra help or attention. And those are very different things, you know? Uh, technically, Cisco treated yes. them like second-class citizens. It was his idea. Well, and apparently Starfleet, too, because they're back at the institution, which nobody has ever said anything good about. You know, but yes, yeah, Cisco specifically. When when all three of them, when Patrick and uh, and, and Jack and Lauren were all dressed in their Starfleet uniforms, mm-hmm. I had a hard double take on Lauren because yeah. she looked like she looked like she could have been Terry's stand-in as Jadzia. Yeah, because uh, she was wearing science. She was right. She was yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that would be a good call because I I think she was Terry's stand-in at some point. Um, I, I might be wrong about that, but yeah, she she definitely carried that off. Yeah, mm-hmm. really, really well, like double take. Well, yeah. Speaking of double take, mm-hmm. let's talk about the line. I can't break the laws of physics. How much of a respectful nod <laughs> could that have been to Scotty all the way back to the naked time when he's talking about restarting the cold engines from the Enterprise? I you know, know, I cannot break the laws of physics. I know, I know. And yeah. I got to have 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that was very nice. Oh, and, and I do, you know, since you just referenced TOS, another TOS reference. In uh, Trouble with the Tribbles, we had the longest bar fight in Star Trek history. I think now we have the longest musical sequence in Star Trek history. Um, it it mm-hmm. didn't – maybe in subsequent viewings, I was used to it, so I was anticipating it. The first time I watched it, I kept thinking, like, is this the entire act? Is all of Act Two just going to be this one musical sequence? Because, mm-hmm. like, I get it, I get the point you're making, but my oh my, this seems to be very long. Someone must have been a fan of Sound of Music mm-hmm. in the writers' room, right? That's all I have to say. Right. So, like, this is you know, this is referencing Doa Deer mm-hmm. from the Sound of Music, mm-hmm. but it's nice that there's so there's a specific terminology for this. It's called solfege. Mm. So I looked it up because I'm like, why are they doing this? And solfege is a form of what they call solmonization, and it is a method to teach oral skills, as they were doing to Serena, pitch and sight reading of Western music. So as much as I loved that scene, that scene was about, if it were a five-minute scene, it were about four minutes and 30 seconds too long. Yeah. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. It's like, okay, well, here, here's the filler portion of the show. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I will hand it to them. Yes, it is a long scene, but it accomplishes. It's one of those like show-don't-tell moments where you're accomplishing what you need to do with the character in a way where you're not just sitting around talking about it. It still seemed like a long chunk out of the show. <laughs> Something that I do want, you know, we, we always ask people, and, and uh, it's just sort of a popular Star Trek conversation, like, what thing do you want? What piece of Star Trek technology do you want in real life? And a replicator is definitely a good answer to that, always. One of my favorites. Specifically, uh, the replicator in Bashir's quarters makes mm-hmm. very big scones. 
So that is the replicator that I want, because if he saw that thing that Serena hands to him on his way to work, that it's like she might have been uh, handing him a pound cake. It just it it was a massive scone. So um, I'm down with that already. But more specifically, though, we knew that when when Bashir was being kind of like uh, turned, you know, by, uh, uh, you know, by the Dominion, Mm -hmm. they were serving him scones and red leaf tea. So where did she learn that scones? Was his? Was it like maybe in the replicator memory bank? Oh, it's got to be. Like, what, what was the last thing that he replicated? And, and then the replicator answers back, "It's scones every day. Every day, yeah. this guy just he cannot get enough. Might as well rename him Doctor Scones because that's what he does. <laughs> scones McCoy. Sc- <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a T-shirt. There you go. <laughs> Um, there's a very good joke in there where uh, the three are – well, a- actually, it's just uh, uh, Jack and Patrick trying to figure out how much longer the universe has. 60 trillion years, 70 at the most, <laughs> and saying that with, with urgency, which is great. It, it, I, I can't remember where I originally heard the joke, but it's the old one about you know the college student in a, in a physics class or astronomy class, and the professor is saying that our sun will burn itself out in uh, 15 billion years, and the – the the student oh oh my god what what did you say is that uh yeah it'll burn itself out in 15 billion years oh whew, i thought you said million <laughs> oh. <laughs> we're all gonna die right, right. so there is a weird thing when when miles was being stood up by julian and then julian finally makes it to quarks and he's talking about serena ad nauseum mm-hmm. the way that his uniform sat looked so strange mm. it looked like he was wearing like an XXL on like a child's body. There's this huge cavernous space that was like behind. It's just a weird thing that, you know, that just kind of struck me funny. This is observations, by the way. So I'm observing something weird. Sure. Yeah. It was just weird. It was just an ill-fitting fit for him or the way he, the way he was sitting in, in quirks. I don't hmm. know. I, I didn't notice, yeah. but uh, maybe, you know, uh, Sid's, Sid's a skinny little guy. So he is a scary yeah, guy. yeah. Maybe that maybe that could have been it. All right, uh, talking about observing things here. We mentioned this in statistical probabilities, and I don't know if it'll come up again. So I just have to get it out there. Can Lauren please have some other trait than just seductive? I I, I mean, I I get it. Okay, it, it is a character trait, and haha, make a joke at Nog's expense. But but come on, I it just. It's so much just going with the same joke over and over again. I really wish that there were more to her than that. Strange thing, though. I don't think that someone being overtly seductive makes them a mutant nor someone that should be put into an institution. No, no. And and that's what – see, here you have this second episode that is actually an opportunity to expand these characters a bit and give them a little more than we had the last time. But it's more of the same which is unfortunate. There is a line that I love in here, Serena describing uh, Bashir's friends after the night at Quarks and saying of Miles, uh, she had to pick someone to replace Atlas and hold up the world and do it with a smile on his face. That is a lovely line and a perfect tribute to Chief Miles O'Brien, the most important person in Starfleet history. Well, this is why he gets a giant gold statue. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have to ask, uh, if you are gaming the system while playing Dabo at the Dabo table, isn't that the same thing as counting cards? 
I mean, should they be doing that anyway? Because sure, she can do it. It seems like that would have been a conversation to have early on where somebody like Bashir, sure, he may not always love Quark's decisions, but he could say, hey, by the way, we're going to go play this game of chance. It's not cool to cheat by count, essentially counting cards. We have to just play this as a game of chance. Uh, yeah, it's it's literally what Dustin Hoffman's Raymond was doing in yes, Man. exactly, right, exactly. Yeah, I do like uh, the use of that's a stupid question. Actually, not a bad way to get out of things. You should just try that in your daily life. And uh, so, do you, do you remember that episode in Seinfeld where George was like promoted, and then someone said, "All you need to do to just get out of any situation was just to look completely irritated and flustered." Yes, that that's it. That is exactly it. That is perfect. That's done. how you handle like walking around like the corridors of power. Just look like you're supposed to be important. Yep. And just act completely irascible. Exactly. Right? It works every yeah. time. And you know that I can't let any food mention go unnoticed. Uh, so toward the end, there is a very important line that Miles says to Dr. Bashir, Keiko's making tempura. Okay, first of all, <laughs> first of all. I sure I bet the ventilation on DS9 will accommodate deep frying, but still you have to be careful. It is a dangerous thing. So just make sure you take the appropriate precautions. Second of all, sure, Miles, sure. She's making tempura. Keiko's making tempura from whatever planet she's on with your kids. You, sir, are going home to Chester and a ration pack. Be real. Or at least be real than Keiko and Molly who aren't there. If they had done Doremi and then come back five minutes later to find them singing Bohemian Rhapsody, this might have been a better episode. Hey, we'll get right back to our discussion of Chris's, but first, a word from our sponsors. And that sponsor is you, our followers on Patreon. And Norman, I, you know, I say it every time, I can't thank these people enough. It is humbling. It is touching. It is wonderful to see old names and new names join us on Patreon and then join us in the Mission Log Discord. You know, when we started the, the Patreon Discord, the Patreon was around for a while, you know, before I started Mission Log. But when we started the Patreon Discord, I was just hoping to get everyone just on board with just being there and kind of talking about topics that they liked. I had no idea. I mean, you know, much to the credit of everybody who participates, I had no idea that it would take this incredible life of its own. And that's really a testament to everyone that has supported the show, that has supported us on Patreon, and especially all of the the new subscribers that have come in recently. Yeah, and that's all over at patreon.com slash mission log. If you haven't joined us there yet, please do. As Norman mentioned, uh, as we were saying, the Discord is really turning into a very personal kind of community where we talk about Star Trek, but all kinds of other things in addition to Star Trek. It was a great place to be able to hang out during the convention, whether you were there in person or enjoying it online. So there's a lot happening there. And our Patreon has grown as well with our merchandise offerings. There is a lot to see. So check us out again, patreon.com slash mission log. And we want to say thanks to some of our newest members. Norman, if you would, please. Yes, special thanks to John, to Robert, Edward, and Alexander, and Connor. I feel like I'm doing 
the magic mirror. And I'm looking through my magic mirror. <laughs> right. Alexander Connor, Kevin, Eddie, Matt, Eli, Anne Marie, Alec, thank you so much for Supporting the project. I don't know what else to yeah. say. I'm, I'm like, sometimes I'm just moved beyond uh, humility. Yeah. Uh, it is great to see all of you there, and we look forward to chatting with you online. So again, any of you who have not joined us yet, please do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. We will see you there. All right, Norman, uh, there's a lot of ways to pick apart this episode, and I feel like uh, we may or may not rely on some of our notes in doing so. We'll see where the conversation takes us. But one thing that I wanted to do, um, we got a lot of good emails when we did statistical probabilities, and I thought that it would be an interesting way to kick off this discussion by referring back to that, because I wonder if we carried along some of the same pros and cons from that episode in this one. And I mentioned in the last segment already that I felt like it was a missed opportunity by not expanding our characters a bit. We got more of the same, but did we at any point really gain anything new out of them? So uh, we did get a lot of comments. We did get a lot of emails. I was able to answer some. Some I just kind of held on to. And one I wanted to address here and read on air. And this is an email from Jesse, and uh, I'm going to skip part of it and, and just really get to the meat of it here, where he said, regarding statistical probabilities, this episode falls apart for me because the depiction is so tropish. Looking at TVTropes.com, the genetically enhanced humans fall into categories like Hollywood autism, disability superpower, and inspirationally disadvantaged. They recall characters like Rain Man, Forrest Gump, River from Firefly, or many such characters from after-school special type programs. This depiction becomes problematic when, from TV tropes, quote, the character turns out to have a special talent or skill that no other character can beat, something implicitly making up for the disability. In certain cases, the story goes out of its way to paint the handicap as a good-slash-bad thing that influences or is influenced by the character's capacity to interact with whatever magic is in the settings. And that's the end of that quote, and Jesse goes on to say, This describes our characters perfectly. Of course, the underlying message to this is that we should care for these people because they eventually will surprise us. And the assumed to be uh, the us assumed to be neurotypical audience members with their unique perspective and talents. Not that we should care about them because you know they're another human being, and that should be enough regardless of their usefulness to us. I know that's not where you guys landed, but this type of message could be read from that episode, in my opinion. I thought that was so well said that I yeah, well yeah that I, I wanted to bring it up here because. Early, early in my notes uh, for statistical probabilities, I wondered about going that direction. I thought, like, is this really a place that we should spend any or the majority of our efforts in picking that apart? Uh, but there were other things to discuss there, and that was a, you know, kind of a plot-driven episode, and we were concerned about Starfleet's treatment of these people and Bashir's treatment of these people. And it really comes back to how it reflects on Bashir. And Cisco too. Up to and and Cisco. Yeah, yeah. But, but here they yeah. are now back again. And I wonder if we're just falling into the same trap. Are we making it any better or are we making it worse by what happens in this episode? Because let, let, let's look at it. You know, the characters themselves really haven't changed. Jack, Patrick, Lauren are the same. 
And we're not seeing growth there in, in any of them. So it, it's as if their institutional life is static. They, just, they go to this mm-hmm. place where they're put on a shelf, they're watched over, and then their only interaction with anybody else in the real world is when they can escape. They literally have to, you know, put on somebody else's uniform and lie to get away, which just seems inhumane. Then you had the very special case of Serena. And I think we're going to really focus here on the ethics of what was going on there because there's a lot to unpack with that. But with Serena, whose decision was it that this is an okay thing to do? And how do we feel about the idea that she needs to be fixed? And once she is fixed, that she is then no longer able to theoretically be with her companions who, as we state in the episode, are the ones who know her the best. There's a lot of disturbing stuff there. And there's a lot of disturbing stuff about, uh, still, how we're treating people who are, uh, to use the phrase in the in the letter, neuroatypical, um, making them this, this special case who are only worthy based on their usefulness in that moment. I think the, uh, the disturbing thing is about this, John, is that uh, what we're dealing with here with these three specific characters, let's talk about Jack and Patrick and Lauren, because they are kind of like this, this trio of characters and you have Serena off to the side. My issue with this episode and with statistical probabilities is that no one really made an attempt to try and treat them. Mm-hmm. But then you have Serena. Serena is this uh, kind of like an anomaly here because for some odd reason, as long as you're pretty enough mm-hmm. and you know, um, the the end result of your treatment is going to normalize you, then you're worth spending time and resources into trying to rehabilitate. But how does that not work for Lauren? Because as far as mm-hmm. we know, all Lauren's really guilty of is being a little sensual. Yeah. So, yes, Jack has his manicness. Patrick has his uh, kind of like his, his withdrawnness. Yeah. But Lauren and Serena, for all intents and purposes, I mean, even Serena, before she's treated... Mm-hmm. Lauren is like the most normal, quote unquote, yeah. of all of them. Yeah. yeah. Right? So why doesn't she get the deferential treatment when it comes to Bashir's treatment? Right. And, and I also felt like it was a, another weird and unfortunate TV trope that that is a parody at this point because it has been parodied over and over again. It's sort of the, the librarian who takes off her glasses and then suddenly is the seductive, beautiful woman who nobody noticed before. And that's sort of forcing Serena into this role again that also felt very uncomfortable to me. And and I, I understand and I realize that this is a story told in 45 minutes it is a story primarily about Bashir, and we're going to talk about you know how effectively or not effectively they they did that. Um, but we're relying on all these tropes to get us there, to get us to that point. Mm-hmm. And I still have to think that if you're going to go to the trouble to bring back these characters who we explored before, why in the world does it feel like well we have them? But all we can think to do is to just fall back on these same tropes that we had before, the same archetypes that we had before, and really not give them any more redemption beyond that. It's yeah. literally as if you would like have the backup singers take the the spotlight, you know, when the you know, obviously the solo singer is supposed to take the spotlight mm-hmm. because 
they, in my opinion, they spent too much time in this episode with any really of the content of those three characters. Mm -hmm. I would have preferred if they actually had some type of issue that Serena needed to be sent to Deep Space Nine because only Dr. Bashir could be the only one that could have cured her with all of the special whatever. But they didn't do that, so we lose a lot of exposition, being able to really delve more deeply into, I think, that's more the the disturbing aspect of this episode. And for me especially... Um, I texted you this, and I'll be completely honest mm-hmm. with the listeners. You know, being um, the son of a doctor, mm-hmm. um, I found I found Bashir's lack of ethics deplorable yeah. in this episode. Yeah. Absolutely horrifying. Now, let me tell you why. I, I want to let you know the reasoning behind when that happened and how it happened. Because aside from one specific point in this episode— Yes, he kind of skirted the 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 justice of uh, whether or not he should do this experiment on Serena, whether or not it was going to be, you know, successful. Mm-hmm. What happens if it wasn't? No one really wanted to talk about that. Yeah. So let's talk about the ethics here. Okay. So number one, treating her and devoting all the resources that you have to treat her during the war with the Dominion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all of his waking time right now, except for that virus that he couldn't solve, right. all of his waking time right now is dedicated to to uh, curing her as opposed to maybe uh, spending that time trying to, I don't know, come up with uh, an anticoagulant medication mm-hmm. for the Jem'Hadar mm-hmm. weapons that are still being used at this time. Sure. When Bashir said, there are a few technical issues I have to work out about Serena's treatment— and he says, but I still feel confident that I can iron them all out. Cisco says, you've put a lot of time in this, haven't you? That wasn't a question. That was an indictment. Yeah. 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 Right? It, it, exactly. And, you know, it, it goes back, like, here's the story that we're missing, everything that leads up to this, which is exactly as you point out, how much time has he spent on this? And why is it his problem to solve? That We start off this whole idea with this bizarre kind of, inappropriate obsession that Bashir has. Now, of course, we have seen examples of Bashir in the past working very hard to solve things he felt were unsolvable or that other people felt were unsolvable, and he he pushes himself to the limit to do those things. But (laughs) there are bigger concerns, and we may not necessarily like or agree with the conditions that these four are experiencing when they're off uh, institutionalized by Starfleet, but it seems very odd that Bashir would take it on himself, that he would be the one to do this, and that he would be a part of this number of rules being broken to let it happen there. You know, it, it, right. starting off on the right ethical foot why he wasn't the one who got back in touch with uh, with the person who was their charge and say, hey, if we're going to do this, we need to do this together. We need to do it under the right conditions. But no, we just need a montage to fill that gap and let it happen. But there's also, like, um, as I mentioned, number one being the, the treatment of Serena. Number mm-hmm. two, you know, uh, letting Jack, Lauren, and Patrick, like, completely reconfigure this specific neural probe to cure her? Uh, okay, that, I, again, talk about a huge scene missing here. Why in the world they would have access to it? Why in the world he would still decide to use it after they had done what they had done? That 
that made that was one of the worst examples of waving the hands because it's TV and just saying, well, uh, you just have to suspend your disbelief because now it happened. I, I would much rather that the writers have thought about another way to get around that problem. That's a day's sex martini. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. But I think the most troubling thing, the third point here, and kind of like this cascade of events that, that brought me to why I have an issue, a terrible issue with this episode, is that he crossed the line of making a physical relationship with Serena. He... He kissed her. She didn't kiss mm-hmm. him. He kissed her. And not more than, you know, more than once. And created this relationship, fantastical or not, with her, his patient. Now, sure, he kind of threw out this excuse that so-and-so doctor is now under her care, so I don't have to worry about the ethics about that. Yes, you yeah, do. Yeah, that, 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 that was just creating an excuse after the fact. Yeah. Um, And and I'll even take it a step prior to that. Not even the kiss. The first time I saw the scene that she's in his quarters and Mm -hmm. he comforts her by holding her and letting her fall asleep on his chest. That was a moment of seduction. You know, I'm sorry, you didn't even need to get to the kiss because you already had that scene as well, and it felt uncomfortable. And what I would much rather have uh, had happened would have been some buildup to where maybe her feelings are the ones that are complicated and out of place, and he actually has to ask himself, you know, is it right for me to actually pursue pursue something with her? Now, if we're going to give Bashir any sympathy at all for this situation, he actually makes an okay case for it by saying, she is the only person I've met who is like me, who I can relate to on that level. I Yeah, okay, fine. You, You are probably right there. I get it. But at the same time, you have had enough practice in your professional service to know that you are crossing a huge line here. And if you're going to even entertain the thought of crossing that line, I I think that other person, (laughs) you needed to start there before you start with, as you point out, him kissing her, him imposing his desires on her. That's what made it incredibly uncomfortable. And now, a comprehensive list of everyone who should be looking askance at Julian, all of his fellow officers, Jake, Cork, Rom, Lita, Vic Fontaine, Garrick, Morn, the Klingon chef, the guy at the Jumjustic stand. This has been a really interesting episode to talk about, but we're not done yet. No, wait, there's more. (laughs) Because at the end of this episode... Specifically, at the end of our podcast, we take a look at what we've discussed, and then we get into, does this episode hold up? In this case, the episode Chrysalis, does this hold up? And what are the morals, meanings, and messages that are contained therein? And I'm going to take a large, deep breath before (laughs) I start, hold it, and see how John feels about, does this episode hold up for him? Okay. So uh, I'm going to separate my thoughts here for these segments, because I feel like when I talk about whether or not the episode holds up, I'm going to look at it as a story, as a production, 
because I think the uh, the ethical concerns and the personal motivations, that's something that really needs to come next. And we, we touched on that in the last segment. We'll wrap it up uh, as we wrap up this segment. But right now, if we talk about this as a story and as a production, my biggest disappointment with the episode is you feel like everything that they're trying to cram into the story that they're just missing the mark at every turn, that they had all these ideas floating around in the writer's room. Oh, we go this way and we could affect Bashir this way and we could have a medical thing that happens this way. And they keep forcing these moments into the script, but then they never fully explore the ramifications of those moments. It doesn't really work here. This episode in the end doesn't really work to deepen the O'Brien and Bashir friendship. It doesn't really pique my interest in Bashir's romantic life because now I just feel like here's a guy who doesn't get it over and over again. Every time he's given a chance, he doesn't get it. It falls short of a medical ethics drama because we go into the episode just assuming that Bashir's right, he's doing this thing, it's great, and let's go from there. So it's all just surface. And there's an attempt here at something but I feel like it's a strange diversion to take with this story and with these characters now. Because, again, like not every story has to be a war story. Not every story has to be tied directly into the overall arc. But this is a really strange path to take where we are now with DS9. And especially since Bashir is a character that we've sat with for nearly seven years. Why are we going here with him now? I was definitely feeling more of the the cringe vibes than I was empathy at most points. And look, I I will defend Bashir in a way, and especially when we get into the next segment. Um, it, it, It is okay for him to have feelings, but dude, use some of your superior intellect to game this out and not be such a creep. You've been called out on it before. I believe in you that you can do it again. I just feel like everything in this episode was accelerated and then telegraphed to the audience. So so at every possible turn, they filled that story with cliches, with the most obvious choices, and it comes across as very manufactured drama. The doctor playing God, the savior for the poor girl who wouldn't have a life if it weren't for him, the makeover that I mentioned before to have Serena presentable enough to go out. Like All of these felt really dated and uncomfortable. So as a production, and again, this is not necessarily about the ethics, it's not necessarily about the character here, but as a production, these are the things that date the story. And therefore, as a production, I don't feel like it holds up. And that's not to take away from the actors, it's not to take away from the quality and production value that DS9 has been and continues to be here in the seventh season. It's just more about script and story structure the things that hold up and don't hold up. So that's why I can't give this one a pass. Then we'll get into the other really meaty stuff. So, uh, Norman, tell me uh, how you felt about the episode first. Well, I'm pretty much in line with you, John. I mean, I I find this episode to be incredibly troubling because mostly it's Dr. Bashir's lack of of ethics. Now, I'm not pinning this on, you know, uh, Sid. Mm -hmm. This is his character. As an actor, he's delivering the lines. I'm pinning this on the writers specifically because I want to know, or I'd like to know, while this story was being crafted, 
or when the story was being crafted, was there anyone in the writer's room that may have had an objection to the motivations of what Bashir was doing in this episode? Hmm. Were there any objections to, you realize, guys, you know, someone held up their hand and said, you realize, guys, that this is a doctor. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's crossing a line to create a relationship with a patient who's created this fantasy relationship around, and he is literally admitting by the admission of his own statement towards the end of this episode that he actually did harm to the patient. He indicted himself. Mm -hmm. So where in the writer's room, when they were reviewing this script, did nobody say, yeah, that might not be the best way to frame Bashir in the seventh season of a character who has come so far to overcome his own issues with his, you know, genetic manipulation to try and champion, pardon the, pardon the reference, <laughs> it's fine. Jim, yeah. but to try and champion a better life for these genetically altered beings. Okay, I'm glad, I am so glad that you phrased it exactly as you just did, because I was about to ask you about whether or not this is a story that we can forgive the character's problems because we have to have the character have an arc. We have to have the character learn something by the end. But I think you just phrased why that's a problem with this episode, with this character now in the run of the series. Because if they had done this before, like, look, we already saw early, early on, we saw Bashir be a creep toward Dax. She put him in his place. And guess what? He learned. And they became friends. And he was cool, right? And he got to go have his own life after that. So did Dax, got to go have her own life. And there was a respect there that was earned. And now we've taken so many steps backwards. And that's what's really troubling here. And, And that's the part that I really wrestled with because I wondered, am I just judging this episode too harshly? Because what he does is unsavory or kind of look at it through the lens of saying, well, but wait, maybe that's the silver lining here. We see a character with flaws. We see the character learn and understand from those flaws to then become a better person on the other end. But is it too little too late here? Well, I mean, I know that we're going a little bit off tangent mm-hmm. here, but I have to address something that we always have done uh, with the character of Worf, where we have, <laughs> you know, we have put him to task about yeah. how this character is specifically created, and uh, he is responsible for always making the situation about him. Bashir is exactly the same way in this episode. Everything is about what he wants. Yeah, the success of this particular treatment, or how Serena feels about him, regardless of what she actually feels. Yeah. Right. So she's never, ever given the chance. This is where this is where Bashir actually does harm to the patient, because she is literally, as the definition of chrysalis goes, she is literally the caterpillar that has Mm -hmm. matured and is leaving her cocoon to experience a brand new world. Yeah. Except that brand new world is exactly the world that Bashir wants her to be in and how she wants her to be in that world. Yeah. He even kind of just, you know, he waves that off when when Miles asks him, Julian, she's your patient, right? Yeah. And he says, not anymore. I've asked Dr. Gerani to take care of her. Miles, I don't think you understand what this means to me. Yeah. But nowhere yeah. in this episode, not even with Miles, who's the only one who's advocating for Serena, asks, but what does it mean to her? Yeah. 
What does it mean for her? And it even goes so far down the rabbit hole of this, uh, just this insanity that Bashir has, where she, she even gaslights herself to when she admits, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to feel? Tell me. Mm. I want to make you happy. I owe you everything. And Bashir's like, shh, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. Mm-hmm. And this is the line that just, it just incites me. She said, no, I'm sorry. I wish I could be the woman you, the woman you want me to be. Who writes this stuff? <laughs> well, yeah, that, uh, right? that, that line is cringy. It's very unfortunate. That line is like turnabout intruder cringy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. that's that's where I have very as you can tell by my tone. I apologize, <laughs> I'm supposed to be a little bit more dispassionate about it. But no, no, the, really, this show is about your passions and and how we feel about it. So the, this is honest about how you feel about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think we should maybe switch gears. That's okay. not necessarily like if the episode holds up or not. That's more kind of bleeding into our final segment of the show, and that is what is the message. So um, I'm just going to kind of continue that, that stream of consciousness Please. thought. Yeah. Uh, now, now, rarely, if ever, do I actually use the r- actual words, morals, meanings, or messages in my final analysis. Mm-hmm. But that's what this episode to me is about. It's about morals, mm-hmm. right? It's about morals and ethics, or perhaps, if I may spin this or twist this in a way, it's the tragic lack thereof and especially where Bashir is concerned. Now, I know that there are Bashir fans out there, and I know that you're fans, and that's great. You have every right to be a fan of whatever character that you want to be. But in this particular case, I will be hard on Bashir. And forgive me if I don't address him as doctor, okay? Because for the meantime, the actions that he took in this episode are unbecoming Mm -hmm. of that title and of that profession. He broke the cardinal rule of the Hippocratic Oath in this episode. He, period, did, period, harm, period. And he did so, as I mentioned before, through his own admission. Bashir said to Miles, how could I have been so blind? What was I thinking trying to move things along so fast? She needed time. I didn't give it to her. I came this close to driving her back inside herself. I'm supposed to be a doctor, I'm supposed to put my patient's needs above my own. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. So what happened? Is he so lonely that he needed to do this? Is he so devoid of any distraction or any other way to entertain himself aside to serve his own needs? What happened that led him to this point where he would actually just systematically disavow his oath? And... The bigger question is, John, mm-hmm. is anyone going to investigate him for quote-unquote malpractice? Mm. Because that's exactly what he did. Yeah. So she didn't have the right way of healing. She has to leave the station with a broken heart and the life that maybe could have been, all because he wanted a certain reality and, as you said before, played God with the power of being a doctor on that station. Yeah. So yeah. that's... That was the perverted message for me. I'm sorry that it wasn't more of a positive nature, but maybe you can spend well, uh, okay. <laughs> shed a little light okay. on that. Okay, because this is interesting. You and I wrote down the same exact lines in our, uh, in our notes, and 
I want to reread this back to you in in pieces here because I wonder if this is a point of redemption for Bashir in as much as we can give it to him. I, we, I, look, we all agree here. When I say all, I mean me and you. have no idea what our listeners think until this comes out. But we're in agreement here that Bashir acted badly. Bashir broke his oath, and he was inappropriate in his expectation by letting his own desires lead the way. He, he let his emotions rule the day rather than his obligation and his professionalism. In the end, though, in that conversation with Chief O'Brien, how could I have been so blind? What was I thinking? I'm supposed to put my patient's needs above my own. So there's the arc. There's the difference between Bashir at the end of this episode versus Bashir at the beginning of this episode. I hate the way we got there. I hate the way we got there because... It seemed like, again, steps backward. It seems like Bashir pushing this rather than simply being caught up in it, which I think with a few tweaks could have actually made the difference for me. But do we in any way have the capacity to forgive, not entirely, (laughs) but level some understanding toward Bashir simply because he got the lesson out of this that he was finally supposed to get. Now, unfortunately, it's at the expense of a person in Star Trek's world, at the expense of a person. In reality of TV, this is a guest who we will never see again. And that's unfortunate because it just feeds the Bashir narrative here, which is, oh, I did this horrible, terrible thing, but I realized the error of my ways. Now I just get to move on scot-free. But is there room there to have this little bit of sympathy for his coming to that understanding, even as badly as he got there, even as out of step as this seems now, seven seasons into Deep Space Nine, after he has had so many missteps before and presumably grown out of them? Do we just look at this and go, you know what, this is such a unique situation that he didn't know how to deal with it? Or do we look at it and say, yeah, but you know what? The guy's still a doctor, and he's still full of intellect, and he is still full of understanding about his professionalism and his obligation. And as you pointed out, Norm, so well, his oath to do no harm and put the patient first. Um, I, If I can see that there is something else that Bashir may have learned from this um, you know, the, the, if you want to sum it up in a song, if you love someone, set them free. I'm not convinced that it was love entirely. He fell a little fast because that's just who he is and how he is fine. But he really needs to get it in check. It, it, it's more like he created a project for himself and then forgot that it was a human being on the other end of it. And that's the worst possible case to have here for a doctor in whose care we have trust. I want to bring up something here that I I told you I was going to throw you a curveball. So Mm -hmm. presented my case for a little bit of sympathy there for Dr. Bashir, even though I'm not totally on board with my own sympathy for Dr. Bashir. There is an interview 
that uh, Faye Saley did. I told you that she is the host of many shows and a radio personality, and she is on a show, has been on a show called Science Goes to the Movies. And there is a segment of that that you can find on YouTube in which she is talking about this episode very recently, too, just from a few years ago, and putting it in the context of the Me Too movement. And here's what's interesting to me. She said that in this episode, she actually defends Bashir's behavior because she said this is a great modeling of appropriate male behavior, saying that the writers made it very clear that although Dr. Bashir had the hots for Serena, she was not required to reciprocate his affection just because A, he wanted her, and B, she owed him. I think we got there in the wrong way. I think we got there in a terrible way that wasn't respectful of Bashir's intellect and respectful of the other characters. I like the idea that there's a positive spin on this. And look, she was there, not me. They were the ones who discussed and created this episode, not me. But I, I wonder, Norman, do you, do, you, do you throw any weight to that, to what Faith said? Well, I mean, that's definitely a, a very interesting way to, you know, to add uh, another layer to this argument. I think that the issue for me isn't whether or not she felt, Serena felt a certain way. Mm. The issue is that Bashir should have never acted that way to begin with. Yeah. He is a doctor. And his admission of guilt to, to Miles, even though that may sound conciliatory, really should have been done in front of somebody of his own profession. Dax, another doctor, another colleague, mm. somebody who can give him perspective. Because what's Miles going to say? Yeah, buddy, you messed up. Let's go have a beer. Yeah, right. That doesn't, right. That doesn't solve what Bashir is trying to maybe unburden himself of. He does feel the guilt of what he did. That's for sure. Yeah. Or he wouldn't have made that statement. But basically, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost in, in uh, similar respects to in the pale moonlight. He may, as, he may as well have been just confessing to a, a panel because mm. there are no consequences for his actions. There you That's go. the biggest issue. And again, like Cisco broke his oath to Starfleet. There are no consequences for those actions. Bashir broke his oath to medicine, a profession that has been there for thousands of years yeah. before Starfleet. The oath of Hippocrates that ha uh, Hippocrates yeah. that has been obviously you know uh, been, been translated over time, but the the number one tenant mm -hmm. of that oath still remains: do no harm. Yeah, number one. You know, it's, and he broke it. It's interesting, Norman, that uh, in our discussions of Deep Space Nine, uh, and, and actually going back to Mission Log's coverage of Deep Space Nine, starting with season one, that one of the things that uh, that we've heard from listeners is. Yeah, but this is what makes Deep Space Nine different because they deal with the consequences. And I look at it, yeah, and I look at an episode like this, and you just described uh, Cisco, and I think I'm not totally sold <laughs> on that because it seems like a big step backwards, and I'm not seeing the growth here that really would have made it significant. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, treachery, 
faith and the great river. Two seasons ago, Brunt, Parades, Cardassian Vols, O'Brien's Cat, and Kukalaka. Did I leave anyone out? Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.